All right, Matthew chapter 17. We're going to go back up to verse 1 and just uh, work our way down through the chapter, hopefully, this evening. And uh, verse 1, And after six days Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John, his brother, and bringeth them apart them up into a high mountain apart. Now, um, over and over again, Christ takes Peter, James, and John, and uh, it usually is said that these guys are the inner circle of Christ, and I'm not sure about that, to be honest with you. Uh, J. Vernon McGee one time said that uh, the reason Christ took Peter, James, and John is because they were kind of thick-headed, and they were slow, not because they were fast, <laughs> but they were slow and they needed all the special attention and, and that they could get. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I wrote that down, pulled it out, you know. And, and maybe that's more the case than, than the issue here. But uh, you, you, when you think about why he takes Peter, James, and John up there, it is, you know, they're, they're, these three men... Are uh, they're very interesting men when you think about their position within the uh, the, the 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 little flock and as, as the apostles. By the way, John, you know, he he's always said to be such a sweet, mild manner guy, and that's really not the case when you study the apostle John. He, him and John and James are called the sons of Zebedee, he, the, the thunder of God, the voice. And uh, he, he looks over there and, and says, you know, Lord, you, why don't you just call down that thunder right here, right now, and zap them. <laughs> so he's not really meek and mild and so forth. So regardless, he takes these three guys up into the mountain, and uh, they go up into what we call the Mount of Transfiguration, and uh, they begin to see verse 2, and was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. Uh, we talk about uh, the glorified humanity, you know, like in Philippians, we're just talking about the rapture and stuff, and we have a, our vile bodies changed like unto his glorious body. Verse 2 is a great description of glorified humanity, uh, and uh, where, where his face did shine, and his raiment was white as light. And again, that sun, that light is coming from within and out. It's not a reflective thing. It's an inner out. And what he's doing is he's confirming chapter 16, verse 27. The Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he shall reward every man according to his work. And he's confirming that statement there about him going to come in the glory of his Father. And that issue that he's demonstrating the kingdom glory and his majesty uh, with which is coming and his kingdom is going to be associated with. Verse uh, 17.3 And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elias taking, uh, sorry, talking with him. So when Christ transfigures and gets them into the, 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 the kingdom, the glory of the kingdom, Moses and Elijah show up. And it's interesting that these guys immediately recognize Moses and Elijah. They don't ask for an introduction. They're, they're not asking, hey, I think this is who they are, but I can't read their nameplate or any of that. They instantly know. So this passage here is one of those passages where you and I can rest in that when we get to heaven and we're in the heavenly places, we will instantly know people. We won't guess uh, we won't have to look around and say, hang on a minute, I think I met you last week. We'll instantly know everyone. We have that ins issue of the bondage and the corruption taken off. That's what these guys had in the transfigured moment here, and they're able to recognize and so forth. So Matthew 17, 3, and, and by the way, if you put Luke 16 with rich man and Lazarus, the rich man recognizes Lazarus right off the bat. He recognizes Father Abraham. He's never met Abraham a day in his life. Doesn't even, you know, they don't have Facebook where you can look the pictures up. I get so many people who, who want me to friend them. So I, I started, well, I was friending, just accepting them, and then it dawned on me I may not be the wisest thing to do, you know. So I went over and I start hitting on their pictures to see who I, you know, mutual friends and, 
you know, see who these people are. And they didn't have that. They instantly recognized. So this is a great passage here when you think about the issue of recognition. Now, come over to John 11. These two, uh, Moses and Elijah, uh, they um, represent the two witnesses that are going to show up in the trib. And uh, we looked a little bit at that last time. These two guys represent the two types of kingdom saints, John chapter 11, that were, uh, the saints that are going to be in the kingdom. And uh, when, when you look at this issue, John 11 here, you have Lazarus being raised, and uh, he's been dead. Martha, uh, you know, <laughs> don't you know that... He's going, to rate, he's going to rise type of thing. Verse 24, um, John eleven twenty four, 24. Martha said unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. It's very interesting. She understood that Lazarus was going to raise, but at that last day, when it was time. Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. So there's somebody that's going to die and is going to live, and then is going to live again in the resurrection. That's the issue. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? In other words, there are people that are in their midst that are not going to die. They're going to walk on into the kingdom. That's what he's talking about, verse 26. That's that verse back there in Matthew 16 when he says, there's some of you standing here that won't see death till you see the kingdom, uh, till you see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. See, there's, drop down to verse, uh, uh, come back over to John 8 and look at verse 51. So there's some, so there's, these guys are here. So there's some people that are standing there that aren't going to die. They're not going to see it. John 8. Verse 51, Verily, verily, I say unto you, if a man keep my sayings, saying he shall never see death. He isn't going to die. And what he's talking about when that about tasting death or seeing death is he's talking about dying. It's pretty easy. It's not hard. Then said the Jews unto him, now we know that thou hast a devil, Abraham is dead, and the prophets, and thou sayest, as a man keep my saying, he shall never taste of death. The end of that verse there. The two expressions are synonyms, they're interchangeable. And the point here is, is that there are two kinds of people that are going to be going into the kingdom. Some are going to just go and walk on in. They're going to be alive. They're going to go through the 70th week of Daniel, and they're just going to move right on in and never die. They're never going to taste death. But And again, that's Matthew 16, 28. They, they're never going to see death. They're going to move right on in. Then there are some of you, you're going to die. There's some of you that are going to be martyred. There's going to be some of you that are going to come along and die. Now, Moses died, but Elijah didn't die. And that's where the two types of people are represented. All right? So come back over there to Matthew 17. So the issue there, and, and again, we know that that didn't happen because God did what? Interrupted the program. Okay? So we understand that. The, these folks don't have any clue of that. They're marching on marching orders of, hey, man, when he's gone, he says he's going to leave. We're going to go right in here. He's going to go. The nobleman going to go get the kingdom, and in return, we're going to just keep trucking right on here. That's why he says those that endure to the end, we've got to make it down there to the end. We've got to do all this stuff. They have no clue that on Act 7 he's going to interrupt the program, Okay. So when you come over here, again, Matthew 17, 4, there's two kinds of saints. Moses is a saint that died and is resurrected. Elijah is a saint that doesn't die. And again, you, you have to remember, Elijah and Enoch are the only two men in the Old Testament that never died. 
And uh, have to remember that when we're looking at these guys. Verse 4. Then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. Now, that part of that verse goes to church every Sunday. It's good for us to be here in church today. Lord, it's good for us to be here. Now, it is good for you to be here. All the people on the Internet ought to be here, you know. I often thought about turning the, the camera off. <laughs> we started streaming way back when streaming was first on the scene, and it was done for a couple of the older folks that couldn't come anymore. They couldn't drive. But we figured out how to get them locked in on the Internet and could, and could tap in, so we started that. And then we bloomed out to what you have today. But he says, Peter, Peter, again, they use this voice. Peter says unto the Lord, it is good for us to be here. And, and, you know, he felt that way. That's a genuine heart of Peter. It was good for him to be there. If thou will, if you will, let us make thee three tabernacles. One for thee, one for Moses, and one for Elias. Now what happens here when he gets into this thing about the tabernacles and the three of them is Peter gets a bad rap here. You read the books, the commentaries, you hear people talk about it, and, and they, you know, they, they don't say anything good about Peter here because he brings up a tabernacle. But Peter does that because Peter understands what's going on. Peter understands where he's at. Peter's just not blowing off steam and saying stuff to look important and, and uh, you know, oh, look at me, I know the verses. But rather, Peter knows what's going on. So why would he say, let's build tabernacles? Okay, well, in Israel's program, there are feasts associated with that coming kingdom. First feast that everybody knows about is what? Passover, right? Leviticus 23. By the way, we ought to all be familiar with Leviticus 23 and the Passover and the feast schedule. The Passover is a picture when they go through everything, the death angel, the, the lamb, the blood on the doorpost. But the Passover is fulfilled completely at Calvary. It's done. I know people still do it today, but they're just... Paul, in Colossians 2, he says those are types and shadows of things to come. It's not... The real Passover was Calvary. Fifty days later is Pentecost, Acts 2. When, Pente, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, Pentecost has been complete. It's been fulfilled. It's done. The type has been fulfilled there with the, with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Well, then after Pentecost, you got to go down a few months. Seven of them, by the way. It's interesting, sevens are running through this. And then you come to the blowing of trumpets. And trumpets are the gathering of the nation of Israel together. Then that gathering of Israel it's on the 10th day of the 7th month. Then there's a day of atonement. And that's the covenant with that nation. And it goes into effect and, and he takes away their sin. And he brings them into the last of the feast, which is the Feast of Tabernacles. Okay? And the Feast of the Tabernacles. And this is where, where Peter's at in Matthew 17 is he understood what he was seeing here with Elijah and Moses and the Lord was a picture and a type of the kingdom, and tabernacles is the bringing in of the kingdom where they tabernacle, they dwell. When those men came, when three times a year uh, the, the men of Israel would go to Jerusalem, Passover, Pentecost, and tabernacles, and they would put booths up and, and, and they would get together. And they, they begin to do things, and they begin to tabernacle, be together. They'd build these little booths, and, and they would live in them for a week. 
And again, kind of like a tent, if you think about they weren't camping for the week. Except when you go back and you read what these guys were able to do during these feasts, all of the dietary laws were put on hiatus. They could drink strong drink. They could eat whatever they wanted to eat. It was a vacation. It was a holiday, a holy day, a holiday. It was a day off from all of the regulation. By the way, only men did it because that's the men, the hierarchy is how the families were defined. So when you, when you think about it, you go back there in Deuteronomy, and, and people always talk about tithing, you know, 10%. No, <laughs> you gave a tenth to the government to run everything. Then you gave a tenth, by the way, that's a tax. The first tenth, tenth was a tax. The second 10% went into your bank account for a vacation three times a year. Where'd they have to go? To Jerusalem. You got to pay for it, so 10, you put 10% away. And then they would run about another 3 to 5% on the third and fifth year for the taking care of the strangers and the poor people. That's the welfare. So, so it was a little more than 10%. People say, oh, do you tithe on the gross or the net? No, you tithe on both. That's what one-tenth was and the other tenth was. So, you know, people get into that stuff. They don't understand what they're talking about. By the way, in the Lord's Day, you know how much the tithe was? 100%. You sell out. You give it all to the, to the disciples and so forth. You know what it is in the, in the kingdom? 100%. Give it rid of You don't need it. It's not good to be wealthy going into the kingdom. Picture of that is Job. Look at what happened to Job. Started out great, ended up with nothing. He actually lost the shirt on his back. But then what happened when he went in the kingdom? He got it all back. Okay. So today we don't. We have a cheerful giver. We have a a, a grace motivation giving thing. So there is no percentage put on it. Why? I don't know who got in all that, but. The thing here is, is Peter understands that they're sitting at the kingdom. So you know what needs to be happening? There needs to be some tabernacles built here. There needs to be some things going on here that are there. So Peter understood that the tabernacles was a type of, a picture of, that millennial kingdom, if you'll let me say it that way, okay? Peter didn't understand anything about the thousand years yet, but he understood that's what was coming. Now, come over with me to Zechariah chapter 14. Zechariah chapter 14. <clears throat> Zechariah 14. And notice verse 1, if you will. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh. Thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee. Verse 3. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle and his feet shall stand in the in that day upon mount of olives you see what's all right verse 9 that's the verse i'm after verse 9 and the lord shall be king over all the earth in that day there shall be one lord and his name one how many lords just one who's preeminent he is christ okay one Lord in all the earth. Verse 16. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall even go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of what? Tabernacle. Isn't that interesting? By the way, verse 16 is a verse. You need to make a note of it that not everyone is annihilated in the second coming. It, the second coming is not a worldwide annihilation. If it was, there would be nobody left over. The second coming is a territorial intensity of his coming on the Middle East period because he's coming back to set his people free from the satanic, from the strong man. He's going to set them free. So you've got you to think about some of this. Verse uh, 18 and if the, if the family of Egypt go not up and come not, they have no rain. There shall be the plague wherewith the Lord shall smite the heathen that come not up to keep the feast of 
tabernacles. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all nations that come not up to keep the feast of tabernacles. The feast of tabernacles is a picture of the kingdom. That's when this is happening. And there's going to be a day there when all the nations of the earth have to come and keep that feast. And they, they have it. In, <laughs> again, in pro, we're, this is prophecy, Zechariah. Peter's sitting over there, and you know what he understood? We're sitting in the kingdom. They need some tabernacles. we got to build this stuff. we got to, hey, Lord, let me do this. Come on, Lord. Hey, it's good to be here. Let me dig into this. And uh, the, the Lord's going to stop him here in just a minute. Go back there to Matthew 17. But he under, Peter understood what was going on and what he was seeing. He understood that Moses was one. And he understood who Elijah was. Moses represents the law. Elijah, who, who does Elijah represent? The prophets, the law and the prophets. So, by the way, Christ is the king, isn't he? And again, Peter, he sees the three guys, it's clicking, he's getting it. And he's thinking about the picture, the type. You have the king. And then you have the law and the prophets. We're in the kingdom. Let's go. We got to go. Now, again, mo today, modern day guys, they have no understanding of any of this. They just think it's a flowery statement that we all should be, it's great to be here today in church. So they nail Peter because they think he doesn't get it, but he really does. But, Peter's going to make a mistake, as Peter sometimes does. Verse 5, 17.5. While he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice came out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. While he yet spake, he's still saying the words. The words aren't even out of his mouth, and a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice came out of the cloud which said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, hear ye him. In other words, Peter, shut up. <laughs> Be quiet, Pete. <laughs> Quit talking, and you need to listen to him. You see, Peter is so excited. He's, he, he is just juiced up. He's like, Lord, man, it's great to be here. Can we do this? And all of a sudden you hear this, Peter, be quiet. <laughs> Don't you know that that is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased? Hear ye him. Pete, be quiet. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face and were sore afraid. Now, there's three times in the Bible, in Scripture, where the heavens open and there's a declaration about my beloved son. Matthew 3, at his baptism. Matthew 17, at his transfiguration. And then in Psalms 2, there's a record of it. And Paul references it in Acts as, a as being connected with the resurrection of Christ. Okay? And, uh, this that, and this pronouncement is made, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, with regard to him here as being prophet, priest, and king. That's those three pieces. Okay? Those three times. Prophet, priest, and king. By the way, who, a priest is baptized. Here he's king, and then the prophet is the issue of the resurrection and the suffering over there, okay? All right, uh, Matthew 17, 7. And Jesus Christ came and touched them and said, Arise, and be not afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no man save Jesus only. Now that's a real uh, tender moment there between the Lord and these three gentlemen. He goes out and he touches. Notice their afraid arise and be not afraid he 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 touches that poor frightened group of men there again pick a type of the believing remnant where he reaches out and touches them and comforts them and gives them that confidence and that assurity so that they can be where where Zechariah just said in that day there's going to be how many one one lord one king and so forth and so Jesus comes over He's the only one left. Moses and Elijah, the type of the law and the type of the prophets are what? Gone. They're 
they disappear. And they disappear in the kingdom when Christ comes and fulfills that. Remember what he said over there? Matthew 5, verse 17. Look back over there. Matthew 5, verse 17. In that kingdom, Moses, the type of the law, and Elijah, the type of the prophets, they disappear in the kingdom in fulfillment when the kingdom is there by Christ. Matthew 5, 17. Think not that I am come to destroy the law of the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. He didn't come to... I didn't come to destroy these. I came to fulfill them. And that's where Colossians 2, verse 17 helps you, where Paul says the things in the past were a... Oh, I just had it. It's a foreshadowing. I keep wanting to say foreshadow. Which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Colossians 2, 17. And what he's talking about in verse 16 are the Sabbath days and the holy days and the new moons and all that, all of uh, Israel's uh, program. We have a picture here. Peter knows, hey man, we're in the pro- we're in the kingdom. We got to build some tabernacles. We got to and and the Lord the the Father says, Pete, shut up. It's not about you. It's not about that. It's about Him. You need to hear Him. They fall on their face. He goes over and rescues them, if you will. And when they get up, the law and the prophets are fulfilled. They're gone. They're done. They're out of the way. Because Christ now is in his kingdom. He's the king. He's the one. Matthew 17, verse 9, And as they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged them, saying, Tell the vision to no man until the Son of Man be risen again from the dead. Again, he's de-emphasizing his ministry. He says to him, don't go out and tell anybody what you just saw. You don't tell them about the glory until after I've been raised from the dead. Now again, go back to Matthew 16, look at verse 20. Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. The issue in this part of Matthew is just that, the de-emphasizing of his messianic office. Chapter 12 of Matthew, verse 16, 12, 16, and charged them that they should not make him known. Again, the issue in this section is Matthew is his rejection has been established. It's it's set. So now he's focusing on training the little flock and getting them ready to, to, to operate in his absence to be his replacement. So he's de-emphasizing his ministry now. He's, he's coming along and, and he says, hey, we're not going to go out to all of Israel now. We're not going to make known my messianic glory, but we're going to focus in here on you guys. So you guys need to keep a, keep a lid on it. <laughs> You know, I always, I, I like a conspiracy theory. And I, therefore, a while I was a big, I like the JFK and the three guns on the hill and this and that and one gun and all, you know, who was behind it. And it's interesting to me. And then they say, well, the government did it. And then they 9-11. Well, the government, you know the government can't keep a secret if it tried. Because as soon as in the government, as soon as you tell one person, it's, it's out, you know, so you got to kind of scratch your head about the government doing it, you know, because they can't keep a secret. It eventually gets out. These guys were d- told to what? Keep your mouth shut, man. Keep a secret. Keep it. Because the, int- the issue up to this point here in this section in Matthew isn't his messianic stuff, office, glory, and so forth. It's about getting them ready, getting them secure to take his place. Now, he tells them at the, there in the end of verse 9, risen again from the dead. He's going to begin to focus on that little flock and just on them. He's no longer on his way to the throne. Now he's on his way to the tree, to the cross. So his rejection has not only been established, now it's formalized. 
he's done. Verse 10. Verse 10. And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then say the scribes that Elias must first come? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Elias truly shall first come and restore all things. But I say unto you that Elias, or Elijah, okay, is come already, and they knew him not, but have done unto him whatsoever they listed. Likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer of them. Again, see that issue of suffering. Then the disciples understood that he spake unto them of John the Baptist. Now, this little set of verses here uh, begins to entail some of the, doct uh, the doctrine about the second coming of Elijah. He's a witness. And we've already seen in Luke and in John and earlier here in Matthew, back in chapter 11, that where the Lord says is, if you had believed, John would have been who? Elijah. But you didn't believe. See? And if John, if you'd have believed and received the kingdom, John the Baptist would have been Elijah, and the Lord Jesus Christ would have been Deuteronomy 18, that prophet, capital P, that's coming, the proper name, Moses. They would have been the two olive trees of Zechariah 4. They'd have been there. It would have happened. It would have been taken care of. But they didn't what? They didn't believe. They've rejected him. And because they didn't accept him, guess what? It didn't happen. So when they look here in verse 10 and he says, Why then say the scribes that Elias must first come? And the Lord says, He did come. And then they say, Oh, he was talking about John the Baptist. You see, the light bulbs are beginning to kind of click with them a little bit. Elijah had come, already come. They just knew him not. <laughs> they, they didn't know him. The opportunity was there and they rejected him. In other words, his rejection now is set. And it's a preview of what they did to John is what they're going to go now and do to the Lord as he now is going to get ready to go and move towards Calvary. So when you come down through them little things there, those little pictures, hey, what did he do to John? That's what they're going to go do to me now. They're going to, nail, they're going to kill me. So you come down to verse 14. Now from 14 to 21, is a, this is an odd little section here. Because, uh, but it has tremendous significance. And I want, we're going to go down through it, and I want you just kind of have to pay attention to, because when you first read it, you go, huh? And then we'll go down it. Verse 14. And when they were come to the multitude, now they've come down off the mountain, again, type of the second coming of Christ, to the multitude, there came to him a certain man kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he's a lunatic. <laughs> Isn't that what every father says? But here it's an issue of a mental, this guy's a lunatic, he's got mental problems, okay? And sore vexed, for oft times he falleth into the fire and off into the water. And I brought him, now notice, to thy disciples, and they could not cure him. The man's got a problem. His boy's demon-possessed, okay? And he's going through all this, and he brings the boy to the disciples. He brings the boy to the little flock, and guess what? They couldn't help him. Verse 17, then Jesus answered and said, he's not going to address the man, he's going to address the disciples. Oh, faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Suffer, put up with you. Bring him hither to me. And Jesus rebuked the devil. And he departed out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. 
That's a, that is a wonderful picture, a significant picture of the, Israel's condition at the second coming of Christ in that they are completely and totally controlled by the devil. And they need him. They're going to need the ministry of the little flock. That's what they're going to need. But yet all of a sudden, that little flock couldn't help them. Notice the verse, okay? Verse 19, then came the disciples to Jesus apart and said, Why could not we cast him out? Now, prior to this, could the disciples have cast out devils? Yeah, Matthew 10. He gave them the power to cast out devils. But now all of a sudden, they couldn't do it. Verse 20, and Jesus said unto them, Because of your unbelief. For verily I say unto you, if ye have faith of a grain of a mustard seed, if you had just had that much faith, you could have moved what? The mountain. Remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing said shall be impossible unto you. Howbeit this kind goeth not out, but by prayer and fasting. Now, verse 20 becomes a real problem with a lot of Bible students because of their failure to dispensationally understand what's going on here, okay? A dear friend of mine, he's with the Lord now, Doug Dodd. He was at Tennessee Bible College there. What's the name of that? And uh, we're, uh, we're in the Smoky Mountains, Nashville. Where's the University of Tennessee at? It just... Knoxville, thank you. And he said that he, his testimony to, to me, we were talking, he said, Rick, I sat by this little brook and I prayed, God, that I'd have enough faith to move that Smoky Mountain. And he said they didn't move. And he said, I beat myself up for a year because I didn't have enough faith. I did everything that book said until one day I heard about a guy named the Apostle Paul. And but now. And he said, when that happened, then I knew why down there. He goes, I'd go to that brook once a week, pray to move the mountain. Lookout Mountain. Where's that at? Lookout Mountain. I just, Knoxville, Tennessee, there's somewhere. I, I think about these and I don't remember the places, but he goes, I couldn't move it. And he goes, but now I understood. And that's what happens is the... Bible student out there that doesn't understand right division or dispensationalism takes it, man, just a little. You're telling me in verse 20 that when the Lord looked at his disciples, he told them they didn't have the faith of a mustard seed. Even in the verses itself, you understand that he's not, <laughs> they were faithless. That's what the verse says. They didn't get it. They couldn't get it. And by the way, I'll, that thing there about understanding it, even, you know, it's crucial. Verse, why couldn't they cast out the devil? It's because of their unbelief. I love that. People ask questions. I get them now a little more frequently, which is fine. I love them, but I, I wrote back one man. I said, just keep reading the next three verses, and there's your answer. <laughs> Lord, why can't we cast them out? And then, and then everybody stops and goes, okay, what's the answer? The next verse. What was the answer? They didn't have enough, their unbelief. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Then what's unbelief? Well, it's not believing. It's not having faith in what God says. Did they believe that they could cast out the devil? They must have because they tried. So, see? So, so then somebody come along and says, well, what do you have to have? To, you, uh, you have to have is faith to believe that you can do it. <laughs> These guys were believing that they could do something, and they tried it. And then when it failed, they were puzzled to why didn't it work? And when they came and they ask, and he answers them, 
The fact is that they begin to then understand that he's talking about something completely different than what they were thinking. And it has to do with the issue of the cross and what's coming. Because the context, you go back up there to verse 12. There in verse 12, that last part of that verse, Likewise also shall the Son of Man suffer of them. That issue of suffering. See, that's what he is talking about. Suffering. Verse 9, the Son of Man must be risen again from the dead. Again, chapter 16, verse 21, from that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go into Jerusalem and suffer many things. That's their... That's what they were missing. By the way, their response was not one of heartbreak. They said, nope, it isn't going to happen to you. You know, Peter's like, far, be far from you, Lord. Verse 22 there, 1622, he began to rebuke the Lord. He goes down in the garden down there, and he takes the guy's head off. Or he dug, got his ear. You see, Peter was not... Peter was still defending, not quite catching and understanding what God's word was saying. You follow that? What's the problem here? They're not trusting the word completely yet. See, he's, he's, he's moving them into understanding that he's got to go and die, and they're going to take his place. And Peter's not, wait a minute, Lord, why couldn't we cast that guy's devil out? And the Lord's like, you're not getting it, Pete. It has to do with the fact that I'm going to go die and suffer. It isn't a fact about your ability. Now look at verse 21. 17:21. Howbeit this kind goeth not out but by prayer and fasting. Look at verse 22. And while they abode in Galilee, Jesus said unto them, The Son of Man shall be betrayed into the hands of men, and they shall kill him, and the third day he shall be raised again. And they were exceeding, what? Sorry. Jesus Christ tells them again he's going to be betrayed, and he, he's going to get killed, and they were exceeding sorry. That is the very first time that these guys were sorry to learn about his death, burial, and resurrection. The events up to this point, they don't get what's going on. Now they're beginning to get it. And it has to do with, the, with those events there about the boy and not being able to cast out the devil. That was an event that was required in the life of the disciples to wake them up and to convince them concerning this new revelation here about Christ going to die and then to be resurrected. And you see that because of verse 21. What does he say in verse 21? Howbeit this kind goeth not out by, but by prayer and fasting. And again, the issue in prayer and fasting. Come back to chapter 9 of Matthew. We've seen this already. Matthew 9. You see, the, the, the story about the son, the dad, and the boy, and not being able to, it was designed to wake them up. See, they've been floating along here. The chapter starts out with them in the heavenly, in the heavenly king, in the big kingdom up there, you know, transfigured. You got to wake them up here. And he begins to do that. Matthew 9. The, the issue here about prayer and fasting. Matthew 9, verse 14. Then came to him the disciples of John, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast oft, but thy disciples fast not? They're not fasting at all. Okay? So the question, why don't you guys fast like we're doing it? Answer, verse 15. And Jesus said unto them, Can 
the children of the bride chamber mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them. Well, do they mourn while the bridegroom's there? No. If the bridegroom's there, then the children of the bride chamber, by the way, that's the little flock, okay? The bridegroom would be Christ. If he's there, they're not mourning. What are they doing? They're rejoicing. They're happy. Keep reading. But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken from them. And then, what are they going to do? Fast. While the bridegroom's with them, they're not fasting. Okay? But as soon as he's gone, now what are they doing? Now they're fasting. They recognize... Go back to Matthew 17. In Matthew 17, they are beginning to recognize that Jesus was going to be taken from them. And that would be, the, pro the proper response would be for them to be in prayer and fasting. And when he says this, kind comes, out, you know, goeth, uh, the kind goeth not out but by prayer and fasting. What he's saying there is when the time comes for him, Christ, to be taken from him, and what is he doing? He's now on three times has announced his going to die. They didn't mourn. Rather, they, they didn't respond in a proper manner. In fact, they don't even believe him. <laughs> They've resisted it. They've refused to believe it. So proper response on their part would be for them to be in prayer and fasting, and that would, be, that would manifest their understanding and their belief concerning his death and his resurrection. And you know what? They ain't got it yet. But in 22 and 23, there are what? Exceeding sorrow. They're getting it. They're catching on but they don't fully understand what's going on in regards to his death and resurrection. And they don't get it really till after his resurrection is over and he begins to open their understanding. And there's a real lesson here for these guys, but also for us. They didn't walk in the advanced revelation that God was giving them about his death and resurrection. So they lost their spiritual power. They lost the ability to cast that devil out. They lost it. They weren't walking, they didn't believe the advanced revelation that he was given to them about his death and, re and resurrection, so they lost their power, their spiritual power. No, you wouldn't. Then that's. How would I know to go back to Matthew 5, 14 and You just have to study it and look at it. That issue of fasting is what drags you back to Matthew 9. Why weren't they fasting in prayer? Because the bridegroom's there. They're rejoicing. They're, they're in the light. They're not in the darkness yet. See, the secret to spiritual power is when you begin to walk in the light that God gave you. What did the, what's the light that God's giving these guys in Matthew 17? The fact he's going to go die and be resurrected. That's advancement. That's an advanced revelation. What's our light? What light do we walk in? Even more advanced. Because we can look back at this stuff and see and go, okay, that's this, that's that. Sunday when we go through some things in the heavenly places, the only reason why you can go back and look at some of that and go, okay, this is what's going on is because of the Apostle Paul. See? So we're to walk where? In the light that we have. So. No, that's... Yep, that's why you don't always believe the center column reference. Or you just got to study it out and look at it. Okay? The light is there. And by the way, for you and I, we understand the word rightly divided. You know, there's no excuse for us not to advance and walk in it and do. There really isn't. 
we have excuses. You know, it's Sunday morning. I don't want to get up. It's too hot. Going to the mountains, you know, going fishing, swimming, whatever. Go fishing with me on Monday. <laughs> okay? It's not that. We just, they didn't, that's what's going on. They're, they're walk, they need to be walking in the light that God has given them. They're not, so they lost their spiritual power. Now, they get it back, verse 22. And while they abode in Galilee, Jesus said unto them, The Son of Man shall be betrayed into the hands of men, and they shall kill him. And the third day he shall be raised from, uh, he shall be raised again. And they were exceeding, sorry, they don't understand it all, but they're beginning to get it. They're beginning to get the message. Before they were disturbed by what he said, they, and, and, and Luke, they actually argue with each other who's going to ask him what he meant. Okay? But they're beginning to get into, okay, he said this now three times to us, 1621, okay? And then six, uh, 1712 over there, and now here again in 22 and 20. He said this to us now here, so we're going to get it. And what he's doing, going to do with them is he's going to fix it so that they can be taken care of, so that they're going to understand what's happening and what's going on. And that's really what the rest of the chapter is going to picture here. Verse 24. And when they were come to Capernaum, they that received tribute money came to Peter and said, Doth not your master pay tribute? All right, so we've got another strange event that's going to take place here. But what's going to happen in this as we go through it is you're going to begin to see where the Lord is fixing it so that they're taken care of. What does Peter say, verse 25? They come to Pete, Do you, does your master pay taxes? And what does he say? He saith yes. And when he was coming to the house, Jesus prevented him, saying, What thinkest thou, Simon? Of whom do the kings of the earth take custom or tribute? Of their own children or of strangers? Peter, yes, he does. No doubt about it. No wishy-washy. Here it is. Okay? But what did Jesus do? He kind of stopped Peter and said, Hang on a minute. <laughs> a little quick on the draw there, buddy. By the way, if you, you look over in chapter 21 of Matthew, you see Peter do this again. Uh, Matthew 21, actually Matthew 21, you see what the religious leaders, how they do. Verse 23, 21, 23. And when he was come into the temple, the chief priest and the elders of the people came unto him as he was teaching and said, By what authority dost thou these, uh, do, uh, doest thou these things, and who gave thee this authority? And Jesus answered and said unto them, I also will ask you one thing, which if ye tell me, I will, I and likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. He answers them with the question too, right? The baptism of John, whence was it? From heaven or of men? Who sent John? God or man? Where did his baptism come from? And they reasoned with themselves, saying, If we shall say from heaven, he will say unto us, Why did you not even believe him? Then believe him. But if we shall say of men, We fear the people, for all hold John as a prophet. And they answered Jesus and said, We cannot tell. Typical politician. And he said unto them, Neither tell I you by what authority I do these things we can't they knew where he came from they just didn't they're hedging their bets matthew 17 peter wasn't that way peter hey pete does your master pay yes he does now watch verse 20, matthew 17 here verse 25 and he saith yes and when he was coming to the house jesus prevented him jesus stops him and says saying what thinkest thou simon of whom do kings of the earth take custom or tribute? Who do they get it from? Who, who, the kings of the earth, who do they go get their tax money from? 
see, of stranger of children or of strangers. Peter said, verse 26, said unto him, of strangers. Jesus saith unto him, then are the children free. P Peter's like, I got no problem. I know what he's going on here. He, they go get it from strangers. See? And that was the point. Jesus says unto him, the children of the king are free then, aren't they? You see, in other words, the royal family is exempt from the tax. Peter had forgotten about something, about who his master was. Who was his master? The king, you see. He's the Messiah. He's the king of Israel. So who's paying the tribute? Should Christ pay the tribute? No, he's the king. But who do they take the tribute from? They come out there from the strangers. And again, that's concerning Israel, okay? By the way, well, what class would then the, the Lord be in? The children or the strangers? <laughs> He's in the children. He's a king. He's the royal family. Peter had lost that sight here for the moment. They're not the children. They're not... They're not the children of the kingdom of Israel at this time. They're the children of the kingdom of heaven. And we'll get into some more of that over in chapter 18 on how, on how, they, uh, how to be a child of the kingdom of heaven and so forth. But what is, notice what the Lord does here about the tribute money. And the point here is what Christ says to Peter, who pays the tribute money? Who pays that? And Peter, Peter and the Lord right now are strangers. You know, and first Peter over there to the strangers and outside, you know, and all this, they're, they're away. They're, they're out there. So, again, you have a picture here of Christ, the little flock, being rejected. So, he, so Christ is going to pay the tribute like a stranger. So does Peter. And again, because they are, they are rejected, they're not recognized for who they really are. They're, but who are they? They are royal priesthood. They're the kingdom. They're the kingdom of priests. That's who they are. But Israel doesn't look at them that way. So watch what the Lord does, verse 27. Notwithstanding, lest we should offend them, go thou to the sea and cast a hook and take up the fish that first cometh up. And when thou hast opened his mouth, take, thou shalt find a piece of money that take and give unto them for me and thee. <laughs> that is wild right there. Let's, let's not offend them, Peter. So let's go fishing. You go over there, Pete. You throw the hook in there, and we'll take care of this right now. I, I, speaking of fishing, I, I, I'm getting the fishing rods ready, and we're going to go, go start sitting. You know, I, I need a fishing boat, but we'll get there one day, a little one. I don't need a big one. I don't need a bass. One thing you'll run down the river. I just a little two-seater or three-seater, get around the, the cove. But when you throw it in there, and what that shows you is the Lord knows the depths of the sea. He knew what's going he knows what's going on down in the sea. He knew where the tribute money had dropped down and he knew the fish that had gone down there and picked it up, put it in his mouth. He knew that when Peter threw the hook in, he was going to get that fish. Now how does he know all that? Cuz he's Christ. Okay? But what you see there is what you see God told Adam in Genesis 1, he told Adam, you're going to go out there and you're going to have dominion over the fish of the sea, the fowl of the air, and the beast of the, of the earth. He gave man dominion over creation. And what did man do? Lost it. But what does Christ do? He, he Christ, restores the dominion. And every time we see Christ doing something like this, it's a demonstration that he is the last Adam. He's the one to come and to restore man's possession, what Adam lost in his rebellion. 
And that's what you're seeing here. He's providing for Peter and the little flock moving forward, but he's, de but he's demonstrating that he is the Christ, he's the Messiah, he is the last Adam. In the transfiguration, you, where we began the chapter, you see man's lost purpose. His original purpose was to glorify God and to demonstrate God's glory. And you know what he see? You know we end up seeing it. It's demonstrated over there in a fish. <laughs> you see man's lost performance. He was to have dominion over the creation. Christ restored it. And he does it in a very touching manner here. With, and again, over and over and over and over again in Matthew, though he's been rejected, he's still the one that God has promised. He's still Messiah. And he takes that little flock aside and he begins to demonstrate to them and to comfort them and assure them and teach them about taking and what's going to happen when he leaves and how they're going to operate in his absence. And he's teaching them that here in Matthew. And as they begin to understand, when they get over in the Acts period, and they begin to look back, you know what they can say? We remembered when he did this. And uh, you know what? We can do it too. And it gives them great comfort, great fortitude. And again, that's what's going on here in Matthew. He's teaching them lessons that they can go over there in Acts. You see it in 3 and 4. And they begin to, they got the Holy Spirit in them now, and they're working and they're doing. And they've learned the lessons and when, God, when the Holy Spirit comes and he gives them the instructions, he puts it all together for them. And that's that thing in John over there about the overcomer is going to teach them. And he's going to teach them things. He's going to remind them. Look over there at John. John 16. <clears throat> Let me find it here. And when we went through this part in John, John 14, start there. John 14. And verse 26. You see, guys, folks, these guys are doing things and the Lord's doing stuff with them. It's not a waste of time. It's recorded because the, all Scripture is given and it's profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction. There's not a wasted word on the page. Now, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John aren't epistles, so they don't bounce in that. But you know what they do do? They do all four of those things. There's an instruction. There's a doctrine. There's a reproof. There's a correction. Hey, he looks at Peter, rebukes him, and the Lord just sits up there and smacks him. Get, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> get out of here, you know. <laughs> okay? Uh, what did I tell you? John 14. Look at verse 26. But the Comforter which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name. He shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. You know what's going to happen? Over there in Acts 2 and 3 and 4, they get in situations in 5 and 6, and you know what begins to happen? They go, man, we, the Lord said this. And wow, look at that. We remember that. Then you come over to chapter 16 of John. And verse 12 and 13. He's going to come and he's going to give them some information. Verse 12, And I have yet many things to say unto you, but you cannot bear them now. Howbeit, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to Come. There's the Hebrew epistles. It's fascinating. The Hebrew epistles. Hebrews, the human writer, we don't know, but God wrote that book. And for Hebrews, here's the relationship of what Calvary means for the nation of Israel. Then what's the next book? James. Right? Now this James, 
is not the Apostle James, because he was killed in Acts. This is James, the half-brother of the Lord. But who is it? It's James. And then we have Peter, 1st 2nd Peter. And then we have John. Okay? So you got Peter, James, and John. Then you got that little dude Jude going in, and then you got Revelation. But who wrote Revelation? John did. See? So you got you got the three guys, the three names that are the big names right there. But the Spirit comes along and he says, Listen, we got that, man. We remember the Lord. And the Spirit says, Okay, you got that. Now look at this. And they talks about the things to come. By the way, that's what Hebrews 2 says. We speak of things to come. That's how you know it's not us. That's how you know Paul didn't write it. Paul says, I'm the due time testifier. The writer of Hebrews says, I'm talking about things to come, man. We're talking about the future here. Anyway, it's time to quit. Okay? They've learned their lessons. And when God the Holy Spirit comes, he's going to give them more instruction. They're going to put it all together. They're going to walk in it. They're going to believe it. They're going to go do it. They're going to, they will by prayer and fasting be because the bridegroom's gone. But you know what they have the hope of? Resurrection and see it. Now, we'll get into Matthew 18 next week. I probably don't believe I got the whole chapter done, but we can do it, okay? All right? A lot of weird things in Matthew 17, but they're all interconnected with each other. And it all boils back down to don't you tell anybody what you just saw because I got to go down there to Jerusalem and die. But on the third day, I'll be resurrected. And they went, huh? And then so you've got to tell us a couple stories to get them back on board. And finally, they, had exceeding, they were exceeding sorry. Now they're beginning to get it. They don't have it all. Over there in John, they, <laughs> they didn't get it. Till, they don't get it. They have no clear thinking about any of Calvary until after the resurrection is over. And he then comes and sits with them and opens up the scriptures and opens up their understanding. Okay? All right. Matthew 18 we'll do next time. Okay? Dear Holy Father, we thank you for the evening, Lord. We thank you for the look here into Matthew. We thank you for that opportunity to see you at work and to see what you've done and how you've provided for the, uh, your people, the believing remnant, that little flock. And we're thankful for that because we can then see how you've provided for us your people, the, the body of Christ. In your name we pray. Amen.